I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief. You're listening to EE Times On Air. And this is your weekly briefing for the week ending November 6th. Engineers developing products have been working with models for so long now that doing so is mundane. The process of creating models is also routine, but that doesn't mean the process is simple. In this episode, we talk with Altair Senior Vice President Pete Darnell about how the task of building accurate models keeps getting more complex as products and product development get more complex. Also, Letty in France just began collaborating with Intel on advanced chip packaging. A discussion with EE Times' newest contributor, Don Scanson, who covered the story for us. Engineers designing chips have long been accustomed to using software models, and software engineers are well familiar with the process of testing code on hardware models. It's also long been common to start designing products with models of both the hardware and the software. More recently, that process has also been extended to large, complex systems with mechanical elements, automobiles, for example, and farm machinery and more. Among the more prominent buzzwords associated with that is digital twins. Those are models of a complete electromechanical system that can be used in lieu of the system to understand how it would be affected by any changes, whether hardware or software. We touch on that concept in a previous podcast from the end of last year. It's entitled Live at the Digital Summit. That summit was held in Shenzhen in China. There's a link to that podcast on the webpage. The upshot here is that modeling may be common, but as systems get more sophisticated, so too must modeling technology. To explore how that's working out, we called up Pete Darnell, the Senior Vice President of Model-Based Embedded Tools at Altair. Altair develops software and cloud solutions for data analytics, simulation, and high-performance computing. And yes, that includes support for digital twins. So your company comes from a background of of mechanical design. And uh, we've long since gotten to the point, or the industry has long since gotten to the point where it's combined uh, mechanical uh, with the electronic, with the software. Pulling those three elements together seems to be the trick. There's a word for that you just told me. Mechatronics, that's right, yeah. And it's um, a discipline that is um, uh, used by control engineers. Mm -hmm. So the controls guys have this big body of uh, theory and software that they wheel up to these sorts of things. And uh, typically you want to start with a model-based development system, uh, something like Simulink from MathWorks or Embed from Altair. And you build a model of the thing you want to control, Mm -hmm. the plant, Mm -hmm. and the controller itself. Uh, You simulate those together, and you get your controller tuned up. And uh, typically, you'll have some control gains. If it's a PID controller, you have a proportional integral and derivative gain per element you want to control. Mm -hmm. And you can actually, in a pure simulation, use optimization techniques to uh, come up with gains of your controller that give you the response you want. So it might be 
minimal time to set point. Uh, it might be minimal time to set point without overshoot or keeping overshoot with an overshoot within some delta. And uh, once you have your controller where you want it, you can generate code for the target processor, which you probably selected maybe based on a prior project. You worked with it. You got comfortable with it. Um, maybe you were given a, an existing board that has A to Ds on it. Mm -hmm. And uh, then there's something called hardware in the loop, uh, or HIL, that lets you uh, communicate with your controller as it's doing its thing. And it can either control the actual real-world system, or if that um, has some danger to it, you might want to control a simulated physical system. If it's a large electric motor or um, a vehicle that could crash into things, yeah, you'd want to control a simulated thing that responded as the real-world system would. Make sure your controller's working well before you actually plug it into the, the real system. Right. So in the example you just uh, gave us, you already have a, a controller in mind. You have a, a, a processor you want to work with in mind, and models probably exist. Um, does it complicate matters when you're working with... Um, uh, a model of something that hasn't been uh, of a product that's also being created in parallel with what you're doing. So for instance, um, you might know you want to have an arm or an X86 processor you want to work with, but you know, you're going to be using the next generation and it hasn't been spun yet. Um, or you've got, uh, some hardware that you want to build, but you haven't built it yet. You kind of know what the, uh, you know, what the, uh, the properties might be, but you don't actually have a physical thing yet that you've measured. Uh, does, how does that complicate the, the process of design? Um, it complicates it a lot and it's actually more the rule than the exception. Mm -hmm. So for instance, uh, we had, uh, a very interesting project at Altair with, um, a very large company who gave us a task that we can't talk about because it ended up working so well. <laughs> but the mechanical guys saw it as primarily a mechanical problem, but it was a very large haptic device that uh, was actually uh, moving the bulk of a human body. And uh, it turned out that the mechanical guys quoted a time frame to this company when they could deliver it thinking in their mind what it would take to build all the mechanical pieces. Mm -hmm. And, oh, yeah, there was this uh, controller that was going to make things happen. But in their mind, that was sort of, you know, the cherry on top. It was not a big deal. Oops. And so, you know, we started with a model of the thing we thought they were going to build. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we, they had shown us uh, working diagrams of how it was going to work. And then we built a prototype controller. And... You know, you mentioned what if you don't know what the controller is going to be and what if you don't know what the target hardware is going to be. The controller really isn't the problem. As long as it has enough computation uh, to, to, com to finish within your framing rate. So you have a certain time step that you're going to periodically calculate control value updates mm. 
you know, maybe it's uh, 100 hertz, maybe it's a kilohertz, 10 kilohertz. As long as you can get your computation done in that frame, the, the target processor you're using doesn't really matter. If you're doing A to D's in, you're doing PWM signals out for actuation, you know, whether it's an SD micro or a Texas Instruments or an NXP or Infineon, doesn't really matter. It's, it's just I mean, how much infrastructure do you have in place for that particular part. And I think in this case, we used a TI Concerto, which was dual core, half C2000, half ARM uh, Cortex-M3, mm-hmm. I think it was, mm-hmm. which made life interesting to get those two cores talking to each other. But uh, it was, I believe we had our hands on the actual final work. We had a prototype to play with for months. Mm-hmm. But the real system was totally different. You know, over 10 times the masses and inertias involved. And I think we had two weeks to tie off the control system. And so there was this mad scramble, you know, 20-hour working days, very little sleep, lots of coffee, of uh, not only changing the control, but having to change our models because the actual physical system didn't quite correspond to what we thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the data acquisition of, you know, applying a, a force through the voice coils and seeing how the system responded had to be correlated back into the model and make sure that it, it did what you expected. And uh, there was some interesting periodic um, forces involved and uh, I just spoke to one of the guys in the project yesterday, and I, I, he, I mentioned I was going to be talking to you. And I said, I got a question. Do you have to update the models very much? And he looked at me. Oh, yeah. Like every day <laughs> we're updating the model. And he was particularly proud. There was, uh, this is VJ. I'll give him a shout out. Um, we have this consulting group mm-hmm. in a lab in uh, Troy, Michigan that it's the fun part. You, the building itself is a triangle. You walk in the point of it, and as you walk into the building, it goes up. And in the very back, it's no longer office space. It's all kinds of, originally it was like super hopped up modified cars. They have a bus they designed from scratch back in there. And it's uh, got a weird sort of hydraulic. Um, a toy shop is what you're telling me. It's a it's a toy shop for uh, big kids, basically. Uh, <laughs> And this is a full-size bus, mind you. And they have giant slabs of metal that are like a foot thick and 10 feet by 10 feet for stable platforms you work on, which I think they were on and using. And it's quite noisy back there. So when I get a phone call from those guys, there's a little shouting involved. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, he was back there, and they're constantly having to uh, uh, fiddle the model, figure out a new controller. And uh, this periodic frequency, he... Uh, he figured out in his control if he could invert the uh, the force at the same frequency and sort of cancel it out, uh, that he could come up with a, a way to control much tighter to the tolerances we were looking for, and, uh, and it all worked out. Nice. So I want to let people know out there that you have been absolutely scrupulous about not telling me what this thing is, but <laughs> right. I'm telling people that I'm expecting... Uh, an exoskeleton that somebody can <laughs> okay. jump inside and walk around in. Or... That would be cool. We are working with a company that does it, but I can say it wasn't that. <laughs> Aha, we've narrowed it down. <laughs> so anyways, um, that's, that's fascinating. Part of the reason to do design 
the way you're doing it with with uh, sophisticated models that bring in the mechanical, the electronic, um, and, and the software elements is to um, accelerate design cycles. Um, does it yes. always accelerate? Yeah. Well, to be honest, I've only done it this way, but I would have to think it does. I mean, can you imagine having to control this weird beast? Um, uh, it's a, it was a big system, um, you know, kilowatt voice coils, uh, physically large, you know, several meters by several meters. And, and being handed it, you know, I think it was a three-week period and saying, okay, make the control system run to within very tight tolerances. Yeah. You know, unless you'd been able to sort of develop in parallel on models, uh, I don't see how you could have done it. I think. So the so the yeah. next question is, I mean, so it will some so this type of modeling will sometimes accelerate design cycles, uh, or, or will often. Um, does it? I've got to imagine that the other benefit, at least one of the other benefits, is that it allows you to design stuff you might not have been able to design before. Uh, you're, you're, you're bringing in multiple disciplines all this and, and designing in parallel to make sure that all of these subsystems work well with each other uh, in, yes. in simulation time, if you, if you will. Yeah, so um, that also gets into uh, a safety aspect mm -hmm. and a validation and verification. So, in fact, there are safety standards out there like ISO 26262, mm -hmm. uh, DO-178. And I just heard about something today I stumbled across. It's SOTIF, uh, safety of the intended functionality. So, the, the um, you know, ISO 26262 mm -hmm. uh, standards are to make sure each submodule performs the function as it was designed. In, a, in an autonomous uh, autonomous device of some sort, right? Well, and any kind of device, oh, okay. but yeah, safety critical. It, well, it could be a respirator, but it could be oh. a, a car, an autonomous car. Okay. In fact, it was an autonomous vehicle site where I came across this. Now you mentioned it. Okay. Um, but the, the SOTIF requirement is that once it's all assembled with these validated parts and they're all, each subsystem works as it intended, does the whole system work as it intended? Right. So that's the piece that has, I guess, historically been left out. And that's, again, where modeling lets you really explore the space better than a physical system. I mean, in a physical system, you want to make sure if I go down the highway, is it ever going to swerve into oncoming traffic? Uh, in a modeling simulated case, you know, that's a bad outcome, obviously, but... You want to know no what harm, happens no just in case and what conditions will get you there, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. And in a real system, would be quite costly and, and dangerous to to try it out. Mm. So yeah, uh, simulation is key. Absolutely. Okay. This is kind of a smart ass question, but are there such things as simulated crash test dummies? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. In fact, Alter cool. kind of specializes in that. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Uh, in fact, uh, we have a special software that is just used for crashing things. And the cell phone companies, instead of dropping, you know, thousand dollar cell phones, they can drop these simulated cell phones and see how they crack up. That's beautiful. That's a beautiful thing. It really is. Yeah. And I think Apple's got it. You know, all the major guys use yeah. it. Okay. So, um, 
we were going to talk about uh, smart objects. Um, mm -hmm. Now, in, in a previous conversation you and I had, uh, we were talking about how uh, this kind of modeling is still fairly sophisticated and still fairly expensive. And so naturally, it's been adopted by the people who can afford it most, perhaps, um, you know, automotive companies, for example, uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, aerospace, aerospace. Yeah. right, right. Um, when you start talking about smart objects, you're talking about the Internet of Things and, and consumer electronics. Um, uh, it, and the thing itself isn't. Uh, yeah. It's probably inexpensive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so how, yeah. Does, that, how does that work? Well, um, you know, this, it depends what you want to do. If the thing is just reporting temperature and humidity, mm -hmm. probably you don't need model-based for that. Um, if it's doing something sophisticated like uh, an energy analysis where it's taking account of temperature, humidity, uh, maybe prediction of the future weather, and trying to override uh, OEM controls on rooftop uh, HVAC units, mm -hmm. which we happen to have a user doing that, uh, they found it much easier to uh, do a simulated uh, model-based approach where they could simulate the controller against a variety of scenarios and using actual weather data and, and verify that they were getting the energy savings that they were looking for before they ever installed it on a rooftop. And then uh, it becomes convenient for them. They can drop in the MQTT block. Uh, they can um, drop in uh, real-time clocks. They can drop in GPIOs and, uh, and just have that go. So the actual interfacing to the lower-level hardware becomes fairly easy. But the big win for them was this simulation capability, not for safety purposes, but for verification right. of uh, the intended uh, outcome for their control. So from the from the creation side, um, what are the requests you're getting for improving modeling systems? Quite typically, uh, new processors. Maybe uh, TI or SD Micro comes out with a brand new one, and there's some pressure to support it. Right. Um, yeah, so we kind of look at this never-ending. Uh, growth of silicon with a bit of dread because you never know what the the silicon guys think is a hot new idea and then we have to support it and we can't just support it you know in a in a simple one-off way like you know if it was some new communication device and you had a need well you'd get it to work in your case for your need but we have to get it to work in every possible case so we really have to totally get our arms around exactly what this new device can do and make sure we presented a nice user interface to it. So you're actually looking forward to the end of Moore's Law so that you don't have to keep uh, revising. <laughs> exactly, right. <laughs> yeah, the sooner the better. Now, the problem is uh, they can always lay down more gates and do more stuff. So mm -hmm. one of the things the chip guys are trying to do is look at a typical board and then look at all the chips out around their chip and suck those onto their microprocessor. Mm. So it's really surprising uh, how many peripherals there are on a microprocessor these days. Yeah. Infineon's got one with radar processing on it. So what is there anything that I've, I've neglected to ask you about that's fun, pertinent, 
just plain groovy about uh, about the modeling business these days? Uh, well, it's uh, it's surprising how much stuff you can model. That's sort of what Altair brings to the table is they let you simulate and model just about anything. You can you can model uh, the angle of repose of grains of corn or sand. Mm. You might think, well, why would you want that? Well, you know, if you're loading a ship or you're extracting from a ship, mm -hmm. you know, you come in with a big scoop, you pull it up, you dump it in a container, and then you want to do it in such a way that you minimize how many of those you do. And by calculating, you know, how this stuff's going to shift, or if you're designing a container uh, for light, uh, you know, maximal strength and, and lightest weight, you can do that. So it's surprising how much stuff there is out there that you can simulate now. All right, Peter, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Brian. It's been a lot of fun. At the beginning of that last discussion, Pete Darnell mentioned mechatronics. A colleague of Pete's at Altair has just written a textbook on the subject. If you're looking to learn more about the intersection of system modeling, simulation, sensors, actuation, real-time computer interfacing, and control, We've got a link to the book on this podcast episode's webpage, which you'll find at www.eetimes.com slash podcasts. Electronica is traditionally one of the biggest electronic shows of the year. It's typically held in Munich, but this year it's going international. Well, by virtue of going virtual. No one's traveling unless they absolutely have to during this plague year. Electronica is scheduled to run next week, November 9th through the 12th, and EE Times and its sister publications are going to be hosting presentations alongside the show. Embedded.com is hosting the Embedded Forum, which will touch on software, microcontrollers, the Internet of Things, connectivity and security, and low-power design. Embedded technology has never been very sexy in and of itself, but embedded tech is what enables some of the hottest segments of the industry, including the Internet of Things and self-driving cars. Among the speakers at the forum will be Flavio Bonomi, technical advisor at Lynx Software Technologies. He'll explore what comes after edge computing. Also, we'll have Christopher Tubbs from Green Hills Software, who will explore the requirements for the highest levels of security in connected and autonomous vehicles. In parallel with both Electronica and the Embedded Forum, Power Electronics News will host the Power Electronics Forum. The industry is in the midst of an exciting transformation in the Power IC segment, as devices made of gallium nitride and silicon carbide gradually replace their silicon counterparts. Among the forum events you won't want to miss are a pair of keynotes, one by Alex Lido of EPC talking about gallium nitride ICs, and another by Sherry Clark of ABB Power Conversion, who will talk about new power supplies that are literally powering a new era of electronics. We invite you to drop in to catch the presentations at the Embedded Forum, at the Power Electronics Forum, and at Electronica at large. Links on this podcast episode webpage are available. For many of the most advanced electronic systems, 
overall system performance is affected by how well some of the more critical ICs interface with those they interact with. A very common example is how quickly a logic chip can retrieve data from a memory IC. The response has been to completely reimagine how ICs are constructed. Instead of having each chip encased in its own package, the industry has devised a number of ways to combine two or more chips in a single package. Significant performance boosts have already been demonstrated with some of these new packaging technologies. Novel packaging technologies have been around for a decade or more, but there are still many technological areas left to explore. This week, CEA Letty, a French research institute that specializes in micro and nanotechnologies, announced a collaboration to explore new packaging technologies with Intel. Don Scanson is an old hand at EE Times. He was away for a few years, but we're quite pleased to have him contributing again. He wrote about the collaboration between Intel and Letty, so we gave him a buzz at his home in the Great White North to ask him about it. So Don, what I'd like to ask you first is to go over what uh, Intel and Letty announced today. Okay, well, Letty actually announced uh, an initiative with collaboration with Intel to develop their 3D packaging to advance the high-performance computing space. Intel, as far as I know, hasn't um, made any mention of the collaboration so far, but the, the Letty announcement is about the 3D packaging for high-performance computing. Excellent. So what is it about this deal that's significant? What do, Does Letty have technology that Intel does not? Uh, does, does Intel have technology that Letty does not? What would you expect uh, or what does Letty expect to get out of this collaboration? Well, I think it's hard to say what specific technology Intel may have that Letty has. I think what Intel brings is their, um, uh, their product side and the know-how in manufacturing and, and, and ramping up volumes and to be able to help Letty commercialize some research technology that they have. And that will help them, I think, even in their research phases to, to learn some things about the, the volume manufacturing that may help them uh, tailor what they're doing a little bit more. Um, from, from Intel's side, if you want, um, I think obviously there's something that we, we may not know exactly which combination of things that Letty's bringing. I think there, what I understand is there's an active interposer technology that they're bringing for um, integrating chiplets. And I would expect as well that Letty may have some uh, specific um, techniques that Intel can benefit from in the, in the uh, chip stacking space. So basically the die to interposer um, bumping and, and those connections. So the packaging part of uh, of the technology is getting more and more interesting. Um, I think AMD, when they just bought uh, Xilinx, one of the things they were enthusiastic about was that Xilinx has some uh, packaging technologies that they're quite uh, adept at uh, that they'll bring to the table. Packaging is becoming 
a really important element of of the technology, isn't it? I, I think so. It's it's something that you know colleagues of mine talked about many years ago, back in the old semiconductor insights days. That uh, you know, the integration and from the chip design, from the very beginning of chip design, packaging had to be considered, and now we see that uh, really becoming relevant with the whole idea of the chiplet. Um, I think that uh, the Intel uh, collaboration with Letty here is trying to keep them ahead to a certain degree. You know, that uh, AMD uh, purchase of Xilinx is actually significant. Intel wants to stay ahead in high performance computing for the cloud. And we don't exactly know what, what Letty may have to offer uh, yet um, with all the work they're doing. I know that um, for the active interposer, for a very long time, Letty has had uh, optical interconnects for that on their roadmap. That may be something that might not be relevant today with the work that's that's going on, but Intel may have their eye on that for the future. Right. So the uh, so if we don't know the specific technologies that might be involved, we do know that it's generically about packaging, and we do know that. Uh, the ultimate goal is uh, to remain ahead in in high performance computing, where where AMD and and Xilinx are are teaming up, and where where uh, Nvidia and ARM are likely to be teaming up, right? Yeah, exactly. I think the the parallels and the comparisons are easier to draw between Intel because they, you know they were the first to acquire uh, the one of the top two FPGA makers in Altera, and now with uh, AMD doing the same. And I, you know, the FPGA is part of the uh, AI accelerator uh, idea that's used in the cloud. And right now, those are uh, those are basically separate cards and things. So I think part of what this, you know, ever, you know, expanding, which is sort of the wrong suggestion of of where things are going, the the shrinking, I guess, of things into the package that we might see those uh, FPGAs. Um, brought in somehow in more into the same package with the processor for the for the acceleration and you know there's all kinds of things one could speculate on what letty might have that that makes that uh, more feasible it'll be fascinating watching the data center market and the supercomputer market moving forward though then Anything I haven't asked about um, this relationship that um, is interesting or intriguing? Any questions that are left unanswered? Well, I think there's a lot of questions left unanswered, um, but I don't want to impose those to you right now because I definitely don't have the answers yet. Well, we should be. Uh, we'll we'll keep reading. Uh, keep reading your 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 blog, your op-ed pieces for EE Times then, right? Yes, I certainly hope so. <laughs> I hope that I have something worthwhile there for you to offer you. Great. Don, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks, Brian. You can read Don's story at eetimes.com. It's called 5G and Interconnect, Posing Actively. To find more stories from Don, click on the navbar button that says Perspectives. Just about every week, we celebrate the anniversaries of great moments in technology history. Come along for a traipse down memory lane. We are going to set our Wayback Machine this week to... November 1st, 1988. 
the day fully 10% of the internet was knocked out of commission by a hack that would become known as the Morris Worm. Robert Morris released the worm, he said, just to see if what he intended to do could be done, which was to get a sense of how big the internet was at the time. In fact, at the time, it wasn't even really the internet quite yet. It was still ARPANET, which connected the computers at government and educational research facilities around the world. Morris was a grad student at Cornell University, but to cover his tracks, he hacked a computer at MIT and released his program from there. He intended the worm to be harmless, but he also wanted it to be effective. To make a long story short, he wrote it in such a manner that it could invade any given computer more than once. The problem was that it did, and with each instance, the infected computer would grind slower and slower and slower. It was an error Morris hadn't realized he'd made. This kind of effect would eventually be called Distributed Denial of Service, or DDoS. The size of the ARPANET at the time was about 60,000 computers. The Morris Worm took down 6,000 of them. One of the first people to realize the problem was reportedly Morris himself. By one account, his frantic attempts to get things under control, which of course failed, also left clues to his identity that the FBI was able to follow. Morris ended up being the first person prosecuted under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which had been passed only two years before. He was convicted, fined, and sentenced to community service. According to an FBI account from 2018, the episode had a huge impact on a nation just coming to grips with how important and how vulnerable computers had become. The idea of cybersecurity became something computer users began to take more seriously. Just days after the attack, for example, the country's first computer emergency response team was created in Pittsburgh at the direction of the Department of Defense. It was a well-publicized event. The FBI said it was also the inspiration for more hacking. The 1995 film Hackers includes a depiction of attack similar to the Morris Worm. They're hackers. Hackers penetrate and ravage private and publicly owned computer systems. Hack the planet. Hack the planet! It's not just something they do. Sure this sweet machine's not going to waste. Are you challenging me? It's who they are. Excellent cast in that one, by the way. Matthew Lillard, who later would be an excellent Shaggy in the live-action Scooby-Doo movies. Fisher Stevens is the bad guy. It's also got Johnny Lee Miller and Angelina Jolie with a really bad haircut. Salsa superstar Mark Anthony has a bit part. Didn't see that coming. By the way, today, Morris is an assistant professor at MIT and a member of the Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory there. And that's your weekly briefing for the week ending November 6th. Thank you for listening. The Weekly Briefing is available on all the major podcast platforms, but if you get to us via our website at www.eetimes.com slash podcasts, you'll find a transcript along with links to the stories we mentioned. This podcast is produced by Aspencore Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McCray at Coop Studios. 
The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week. Okay, so last question then. Uh, Has anybody asked or do you anticipate having to simulate um, cyborgs? Uh, You know, I haven't thought about that, but I'm sure there's people out there doing it. Well, in fact, Elon Musk is Mm -hmm. drilling holes in heads and inserting uh, Mm -hmm. sensors, right? He wants you to be able to summon the Tesla with thought instead of having to get up sort of the ultimate couch potato experience and then have a little robot wheel you out to the car. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. Are you ready to go for that? I'm not sure I am. I am not. No. (laughs)